press the bell icon on YouTube and don't miss another update. Namaste viewers, welcome to Jaipur Dialogue USA. And today most shocking, actually not why almost, it is totally shocking that uh, a most peaceful community in the world, the most peaceful faith in the world, is under a barrage of attacks, very sustained, very organized attack on us globally. And thanks to technology, we get to know of it. Today, I have the pleasure of welcoming Malini Nath Shara Gates from Australia. So it must be 12.30 a.m. for you. So very early morning, Malini Ji. Welcome to the show. And thank you very much for pointing out to the the Hindutva harassment field manual prepared for people who have been, uh, who are supposedly target of Hindutva attack. And it's a very interesting acronym. It's called Sasak. You know, if you just change the pronunciation to Shasak, it becomes the ruler. And, uh, you know, it is called uh, the South Asian Scholar Activist Collective. So we can make out that it is a very well-planned uh, effort to do so. So share with us your life story, how you ended up becoming a Sanatani. And you know you, you proudly call yourself a Sampradayik woman, initiated uh, in Sampradayik behavior. You follow Kashmir Shaivite, specializing in eco-social justice through the lens of dharma. That's beautiful. So tell us something about you so that the people get to know. But prior to that, request all the viewers with Jaipur Dialogue USA and Jaipur Dialogue to subscribe, like, and share the channel. Expand. We are in the USA as the, as the little brother of uh, Jaipur Dialogue India. And we are our effort is directed towards bringing awareness, changing the narrative, bringing the stories, of falsehoods and truths to you, to inspire you to action. It is important that it's we just don't only know things, but after knowing things, if we don't move forward, then that knowing has no meaning. So with that, Maliniji, the floor is yours. Or I should say, <laughs> the stage is yours. <clears throat> Thank you very much, um, Vibhuti. Uh, it's really difficult to explain, but I think that Dharma draws us to it, you know, like we're guided into the tradition. And I was just fortunate that my life circumstances just led me to meet my guru, my first guru, and I, I became very serious about um, all aspects of yoga, uh, everything about it. I, I just I loved it uh, straight away, and I, I felt that I was born uh, for this tradition and this path. So I was a teenager then, but I had already practiced uh, meditation through my childhood and I was very spiritually inclined. But I didn't really know that I was a Hindu, I think, until I studied Kashmir Shaivism and I realised that I'd been worshipping uh, not only from a young, uh, young age nature and, the, you know, the divine all around me and seeing the world as divine, um, I'd been worshipping... Mark Ali and Lord Shiva. So it seemed to me very dishonest to deny the tradition and its ancestral roots, which go back 
I think they go back far further than the prescribed 5,000 years. So I'm one of the... Um, I'm one of those people who think it's a very, very ancient culture. So I'm very honoured to be part of it. And thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, here we have the targeted by hate. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I'm, I don't know if I'm a Hindutva because I read these... Um, I don't even know what it is, to be honest, because what they say it is and what other people seem to think it is, I, I don't think anybody has a clear understanding of what it means to be Hindutva, except for if you question these scholars, they automatically uh, accuse you of being some uh, <clears throat> oppressive person uh, just for asking for a reference, for example, or pointing out a fact. <clears throat> So I'm a bit concerned about the title Hindut for harassment uh, and targeted by hate because if you look underneath the what their target what their targets are it's things like lawful um, civil rights type of, of activities like writing letters or um, attending conferences and um, expressing your dissent to what the what the, uh, the speakers might be saying or anything that looks like it you know or pointing out the errors in, in, in some people's work and rejecting them on the grounds that they're actually quite hurtful and harmful to the Hindu tradition. So if you look at that manual, it's like a profiling um, manual. It, it says that if you speak against uh, anti-Hindu sentiment that you're making things up and that you're attacking them and that, that it's hateful and essentially hateful. It is. It is. I, I had the. I mean, thank you for sharing that manual. And I have. Uh, I will. We will put it on Jaipur Dala website for all to know that it is a remarkable document. It was set up by 2021 in 2021, and they have given a very what you call a lofty painting us as evil. There's no discussion. Painting us as evil, and as you notice, they have given a very nice chapter-wise, uh, you know, uh, you know, elucidation of their issues. They call intersectional hate, organized harassment, academic freedom, bad faith bias claim, legal considerations, and conference best practices. This is the way they have termed their chapters and how organized they are to malign us. And then I'm just reading that part here. This, this is such a false declaration they have. They say Hindutva ideology rejects diversity as a social value, whereas Hinduism is the most diverse faith or belief system ever anywhere in the planet Earth with, with complete freedom. They say we seek extreme form of homogeny. The godfather of Hindutva ideology is Savarkar. Taught Indians who identify as members of other religions were rightly Hindu, thereby seeking to deny individuals and social groups of agency and identity. This is so such a lie. And they keep saying that, you know, it is, it is designed for global destruction. This is this labeling of Hindus in such an extreme fashion. And that too, what is still is very, very shocking is they are done by scholars of Columbia, Georgetown, University of Washington, Yale, uh, and of course, Audrey Trushke of Rutgers University. Uh, 
So, you know, no surprise there. But let's talk about this part. Why is the reason, I mean, in your experience of being a Shaivite following Hindu traditions, what is the origin? What drives people nuts in terms of being so collectively organized globally? Globally. You are in Australia. It's happening in Australia. It's happening here in America and, of course, India. What do you think is the reason for that? Well, I think the manual, um, it sets things out in such a way that persons can use that as a, a benchmark, a framework to apply any time that they're questioned. So it makes members um, who are, are questioned non-accountable to what they're doing and saying in terms of the other criteria that they place there, like um, they talk about civil rights and they talk about um, academic uh, policies and codes and that, that it's us that are restricting them. But in fact, academic freedom isn't unlimited in the same way as religious freedom isn't unlimited. If you, if you fall outside of, the, the, par uh, of the, the parameters of what's acceptable in society and you break the law, for example, you can't say, well, you know, I did it because of my religion, you're still accountable to the law. So in the same way, academic freedom has parameters and every, every university sets those, but there's a, there's a universal uh, consensus uh, about what comprises academic integrity. And one of those things is academic sources. And that's what this manual lacks, is that you can't actually, it sets you up so that you can't question it. <clears throat> Otherwise you're X, Y, and Z and you're hateful and bigoted, and if you write letters, then you're harassing them and so forth. That's on the one hand, and on the other hand, it has no substance. Uh, so you can't question and then, you know, you're, you can't hold that to account because those institutions um, that are backing this, they are, um, they're not holding their scholars to account in terms of academic integrity. So academic sources are, you know, like you need official findings, official statistics and so forth. You need uh, somebody said this somewhere and then you've checked their facts and their facts stack up. You can't just circular reference one another, which is what they've done and how they get away with this is that so-and-so makes some propaganda and then they link it to the propaganda and they build this layered... Um, what, they, what they've actually referred to as a paper trail They've built a paper trail. So every time somebody goes to the police, for example, like they did when I made that video, they went to the police complaining about someone on between the 5th and the 7th of September and the only person that had made a video in that time was me. So they've got a paper trail. They say, oh, well, even if the police can't do anything, um, it's, it sets up a paper trail. So if something later happens, you've got that there on the record. So they're profiling um, people and then they build... Um, like a propaganda mill. So that incident was then written about four or five times in the media, but they didn't check the facts to begin with. And the police had said, no, there's no problem. Uh, we can't press any charges. There's no one has done anything wrong. So, you know, then they say, oh, police are worried about it and they've put a safety plan in. Well, for what? I didn't get, nobody um, had any complaints actually registered or filed or investigated even. So, this is the thing they build up. They give you the tools so that um, you can't hold them to account and then they use the system against you. Use the system against you. And that's a very important part because, you know, when democratic aspirations are crushed in the name of democratic aspirations, 
then we have a problem because whatever if you if you and i contest their assertions or their claims not even assertion their claims then we are branded as the hindutva who can't tolerate things in reality we are the most accepting faith in the world i proudly say that but how do we account for you know the manual is there for everybody to re- read it is on the website is a document everybody to read and what imp- impresses me in a negative way is how organized they are how vicious they are how maligning they are so how how do you attribute what do you attribute this mainstreaming of hindu hate where is it coming from what drives that hatred towards the hindu philosophy the way we are well the manual itself and if you build a um ideological framework out of the materials that they present which they do repeatedly present the same materials so you can see okay you know 20 20 different people have said the same thing about each thing so they build up this sort of um they repeat it over and over again it's like a, a broken record thing that hindutva people um follow uh, savarkar and gowalkar said this and this in 1937 and so and so shot um gandhi and then you know it goes on like that and upper castes uh, uh, um you know it's all part of an infrastructure of hatred where upper caste supremacists to you know recite the vedas for example um a uh, uh, you know attacking and um even committing atrocities against peoples in in India and in diaspora and so forth and these people they just use this um terminology of anti-hindu and hindu phobia in order to smoke screen the fact that they are themselves perpetrators so it's like a it's it's um it's it's totally unlawful in terms of how we run um legal cases you're guilty before you're even tried and you're guilty by judge jury and ex- executioner that is you know they are, they they hold themselves as this type of papal authority that tells you exactly what you can do what you can't do and if you break the rules that they make as they go along then they will try you by public execution or public they will try you by public um trial um trial through the media and then they will publicly try to a uh, character assassinate you um so it's well, it's like a witch hunt so i think if you go back through history and you look at these type of um the institutionalized forms of violence you have all these different actors which are motivated in a certain way um to secure their supremacism and secure their territory so usually it comes back to some kind of territorial claim and we have these competing actors they may be communists marxists they may be um which are political organizations in india so they're not just you know theor- critical theorists in the institutions they're political organizations and they are involved in some of them have been historically involved in massacres and genocides and so forth so they're not innocent in terms of the same if you apply the same framework to them they're not innocent and then you've got people who are islamists or or sympathizers of islamists who who want to um you know they say they're activists for kashmir um self determination but they're not they're actually working um hand in glove with the interests of or benefiting the interests of a colonizer which is pakistan um or a separatist movement which is produce so much violence and unlawful activity terrorist activity so these forces are actually 
they're, you know, are they connected? Are they, can you say that they're terrorists if they're doing the work of covering up terrorism? It's like, can you say that a person is racist if they're covering up a crime that's happened to someone in society and they're, they're presenting it in a favourable light for the perpetrator? I don't know how far you can go in, in terms of saying these people are actors in a, in a network of, of terrorism, but you can say that they're part of an institutional framework that, that each is working in order to obtain political aims. So it could be because they don't like BJP, which is why a lot of this has come out, is that they don't like BJP. And Modi is perceived to be, a, you know, an acolyte of, you know, a leader of Hindutva and all these different things that they say about him. But if you look at what he's doing in terms of his policies and practices and whether or not he's compliant with the Constitution or if it's being upheld in the court or if the police are taking things seriously, he's being blamed for everything that's happened in the country, even things that didn't happen, <laughs> even things that they just make up. Um, and it's all the Prime Minister's fault. Like... It's ridiculous and it's all because of Hindutva and because we are Hindu, they've got this big profile they can just throw at us. Like you must be a Bhakta or a Sanghi or a, um, a Hindutva terrorist, a Saffron terrorist, an extremist, a far-right nationalist. <laughs> like it's the most ridiculous thing on earth. It so. Is. It's it's gone on for centuries, though, in different forms. It's nothing new. They did this to the um, Congress Party. They should have a, they've got a very short memory, but you know the way that the colonial forces were working, they've been doing this for hundreds of years. And before the British colonisers, there were Islamist um, rulers, and they they had certain um, penalties and restrictions on Hindus. That that that's all about anti-Hindu. So they say, oh. Hindu phobia is a recently coined term, and I, I said, no, look, it goes back to 1866, and you can check that. It's it, There's nothing new anymore. I've published that two years ago. But the word anti-Hindus are much older. Um, so it's anti-Hindu in the sense of negating the Hindu and curbing the Hindu, oppressing the Hindu, pushing the Hindu as the other. This is a type of xenophobia, and that's chronic. That goes back thousands of years, it's ancient. It goes back to the xenophobia is like the fear of the foreigner, but that's also fear of the foreigner who's infected by some disease or they're demonic. And that's the thing that they did with Hindus is that they rendered them to be demonic. They were worshipping false gods and they were being possessed by false gods and they were violent gods and they they, they killed children and they, they throw women on their funeral on the funeral pyres and Look, they're just bad, bad, bad people. They're evil, they're demonic, they worship Satan. So you can see where the anti-Hindu becomes Hindu phobia because they're terrified. They are terrified. I mean, they even say that, that they won't do yoga if you chant Sanskrit. It's ridiculous because that's the demon's power or something. This is how this is how deep it goes. So why? It's a big question why, isn't it? Big question why? And actually, you know, last week we were having this conversation with a friend of ours. And he has, he always emphasizes this element, like you said, that demonize Hindus. It's a thousands of years of attack on us. Is it because of the religious reasons we are an unfinished business? He calls it Hindus and India is an unfinished business for 
the Abrahamic faiths because both of them rule the country, but we are the only indigenous people still surviving. And we are surviving. We didn't get demolished. We didn't get converted. We did not. We still are there. Is this the reason why there is a fear? What drives their fear and hatred towards Hindus? Is it because it's truly scientific, Sanatan principles? And you are very familiar with these, uh, these principles. So is it that our, our philosophy and, and our, the way of life, which is based on science, which is entirely based on science, and the science is gaining prominence, so do you think the organized religions fear that in this era and time, with science we now know, I would never have known that Australia is having such organized effort to demonize Hindus in Australia. So, you know, your country, and you are there, and we become individual targets by them. One thing, that's another thing which I notice, that if you and I are talking about it, tomorrow there will be a sustained attack on you and I, as if we are questioning their belief. That, that's not it. That's not who we are. We are absolutely accepting form of life. We accept anybody, whoever, the way they are, so long as we respect each other as people, as universal principles. Where, what is to be done about it? Because this kind, this kind of an attack on Hinduism is all about eliminating it. And unfortunately, some people who are more Wokistanis, as some, somebody said here on the chat, they're more Wokistanis than Woks. Indians particularly, Hindus particularly. What? How does one deal with that? What must we do? Where is the response from us? I think that's a good framework to start with because if you look at, I guess, in terms of um, Eurocentric imperialism and other kinds of imperialism, what they do is they, 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 they really they instrumentalise these faith and ideological um, uh, you know, constructs, they instrumentalise them to justify what they're doing. But um, according to genocide scholars, it, like um, it's more inclined, they're more inclined to use those theories to justify the seeking and expansion of territory. So what they really want to do is claim territory, whether that's territory of mon monopolising um, and obtaining control over um, land and like we've seen with you know, European imperialism, and other kinds of imperialism. It's territorial. They want to secure and obtain the land and have dominion over it, for example. So Indigenous cultures were in the way. So all Indigenous cultures have, um, they, 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 they have a different way of living to these, you know, modern, I'm not saying that they, that they, that they are the same now. I'm just saying that before, um, the, the, the modernity and industrialization projects and so forth, they, um, they had a very close connection with the land because they depended on it for this um, uh, subsistence and so forth. They had a different economic system, different family structures, different languages, different ways of viewing reality. And they were more generally inclined to using, um, you know, like natural herbal medicines and so forth, which Hindus still use. So all of these ways of life that are indigenous 
and connected to the spirit of the land and connected to the spirit of even animals and plants and so forth. So we, we have all of this, that the deity is actually alive. Uh, she's he or she. <laughs> Our deities, they're not just stones. They're not just objects that we're looking at and that we worship. They're living beings with, with pulse and with life. So we see this life infused in, in all of creation and Indigenous peoples around the world generally do feel that way. So in Australia, we have the same thing and they, they feel in the heart, they see reality, you know, and our kinship with one another in that sense of that we're, we're one people as a human um, family. And I think Hindus haven't lost that. They still have that sense that we're one people as a human family and we need to work mutually and reciprocally in this sort of um, mutually respectful manner so that we can build one another up and empower one another so that we can have a peaceful, sustainable uh, future and civilization. So it's a civilizational threat when you look at it, um, whether it's coming from Abrahamic tradition or from a Western empirical tradition or from an atheist tradition. These are all, um, these are all uh, thought constructs which, which are centred on dominion and of obtaining territory over your mind, over your thinking, over the ways that you do things, over the ways that you live. So it's, you know, it's not really that complex when you break it down. I mean, they want to have, you know, the, the planet needs to be uh, in accord with the way that they want things. So we have cultural imperialism now. So the, the, it's all about territory. Who's you know, whoever's got the most territory, wealth and power, um, you know, is, is the supreme entity on the planet. So it's this constant, it's this constant battle for this supremacy that, that hasn't stopped. It's just ongoing. And I think it's a disease in the mind. It starts, you know, with that inferiority complex. If you can't see one another as equally That's human. The, you use the word inferiority complex and I made a note of it actually is that I'm trying to figure out as a, as a human, as an individual, is that what drives the hate, the phobia against Hindus in other people? And that's because potentially they do suffer from inferiority complex. And I, I would tend to agree with you that inferiority complex related to the, the fact that religion, and you said about that, the conflict, the conquest of land, acquisition, and a mm -hmm. friend of mine has written a book on it, actually. He calls it the God, Glory and Gold. And seeking for all these things, the indigenous people were the biggest sufferers of the entire imperial colonial practices, mm -hmm. the position of the cultural change, the economic imperialism, political domination. Is this part of the human nature that people indulge in? And those who, who, those who fight survive, those who don't, they lose. And we know the history of the, of the world and history of the man, history of man, in, in the sense that how many civilizations have disappeared. We still survive. And this is a very important question that I wanted to check with you, although you asked, you tweeted that I hope he asked me easier questions and not difficult questions. <laughs> there are no questions that are difficult or easy. It is, we are here to figure out figure out what is driving that and how do we address that challenge. That's the important part because there is a very important element. People, majority, a whole lot of Hindus will tell me, oh, we Hindus have survived, we are Sanatan will survive. And my counter to that is, ask that to Kashmiri Pandit. 
he survived. He doesn't have a home anymore. Ask that to a Sindhi from Sindh in Karachi, Pakistan area. They don't have a land of their own anymore. And what I notice is that the gradual effort is to make us homeless again. We become homeless in our own homes. And that's the important part. Where will Sanatan survive? Will it survive in India or it will survive as a practice all over the world as science and technology evolves? Your thought? It's a big question. I think every, um, every, every system has limits. The planet has limits. We have limits. You know, our psyche, our, our whole being, you know, we have limitations so that if you cross over a certain parameter, a certain boundary into our space, our sphere, and you violate us, Mm-hmm. To, to weaken us, we need to assert ourselves. So we even have immune systems to, you know, deal with foreign organisms, foreign entities that come and try and colonise ourselves. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, colonialism is, um, it's a, I guess if you want to look at it in a biocultural way, you could say it is part of nature, it's part of human nature that, you know, that this this quest to expand and, obtain maximum territory and you know, go forth and prosper and such things. Um, that is kind of like a natural impulse, but I think in terms of civil society, you're looking civil society and civilization. you're looking that we've got boundaries and we've got laws and we've got systems in place so that we can protect those boundaries so that people can flourish inside a safe container. That's why we have laws. That's why we have law enforcements. So I think we've got a system now. I think the democratic system is quite good. I don't think it's, um, you know, I don't think it's at all um, at odds with the Dharmic traditions. So it's possible to have that unity and diversity within a democratic system so that people have rights. But if you infringe on other people's rights, there's boundaries in place that can be enforced to protect them. So if we don't use the systems that are in place in our societies, which we have, especially those of us that were um, we're Commonwealth countries, we have we have quite good infrastructure legally that we can uh, enforce. But if the system isn't educated to know how to identify what's going on with us, so we need to educate the system because it hasn't been educated. We need to conduct the research to prove to the system that these are the patterns that are occurring. This is the type of abuse that we're experiencing in discrimination. This is the ways in which the institutions actually um, oppress and um, limit our our flourishing, our religious um, freedoms and cultural freedoms and so forth. We need to explain all of this to the system and then we need to enforce it. So we're we're on the back foot because there's no research hardly any peer-reviewed research on anti-Hindu sentiment. There's tens of thousands, tens of thousands of peer-reviewed studies on other kinds of discrimination, but there's nothing on anti-Hindu sentiment. And like I've shown, it goes back hundreds of years, even just the words. And the ways in which those words were used, they actually map out what anti-Hindu sentiment is. So it's not like we're lacking... We're not lacking resources to be able to do the work, but the work hasn't been done, which is itself anti-Hindu sentiment. Like, why haven't scholars done this work and why are we now being told that it doesn't exist so we can't can't obtain our rights, we can't 
assert ourselves, we can't obtain self-determination, we can't protect ourselves so that people, it's, it's that anti-Hindu, Hindu for hate manual is a license. It's a license to hate. It's a license to suppress us. And it is endorsed by systems, institutions. Um, it's being used when, you know, when people make complaints um, as an excuse to justify why people have been committing acts of anti-Hindu hatred. So it's like, how is it that Hindus are the only tradition on the face of the earth that never, ever face any kind of discrimination? It's the most ridiculous claim. It's the most exceptional claim. Not only that, but if we say we face discrimination, we are in fact discriminating because we are essentially oppressive by nature. It's like if you complain about your discrimination or any kind of hate speech or hate crime, cyberbullying, uh, verbal abuse, any of the types of abuse, if you complain about them and you say that these are aggravated by the facts that I am Hindu, I'm a practising Hindu, um, you know, um, it's just used against you. So <laughs> it's like yeah. you go in there and you say someone's done something wrong and it means that you've done something wrong. <laughs> like, That's right. That's I can't right. believe that anybody's even fallen for this and these institutions that are standing up and these hundreds of scholars, these idiot scholars, hundreds of scholars signed the petition to to say that that was all good, that global uh in, what is it, Dismantling Global Hindu Conference, it relies on this genocidal, genocidal ideology. And they are all approved it, even genocide scholars. That, 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 that's truly amazing you said that, and I'm so glad you said that because institutionalizing the hate against us is becoming more rampant and is visible. It's terrible. It's I terrible. can't believe it. I have not seen any, any class of people ever discriminated like this, like in this particular way, ever. Like I've seen a lot of discrimination against Indigenous Australians. It's terrible. It is absolutely shocking. You see it in the supermarket when you're buying your food. But like when they go up to the, you know, and make a complaint and say, look, you're being racist, if they escalate and escalate and escalate that, it eventually will get some um, attention. But if we complain, um, well, our Hindus don't face persecution. What are you talking about? You are persecutors. <laughs> That's a, it. Is a, is a fascinating, sadly fascinating, attack on us. Where is the organized response from the Hindus? Are we? No, there's no organized response. There's no I organized mean, response. It's, it's absurd. There is a manual of Hindutva hate manual. How to address these issues? We are being. You know, we, we are being attacked. We are being framed as the oppressors. In reality, we are the ones who are oppressed. This is a very, very sad way to reflect on a situation. So institution part you talked about, and that's what is the West and others are very good at institutionalizing things. You know, freedom of religion as one of my, one of my absolute, uh, you know, issues that I'd love to deal with and I want to challenge that and I keep challenging that. The freedom of religion. Nobody forced you to become who you are today. Nobody forced you to become Malini Nath and you love your name you know, more than Sarah Gates. 
<laughs> and, and nobody has ever forced you to become like this, right? Uh, yeah, like, no, it's just love. Yeah. And uh, it's just love. And the only reason why I speak to this is because I find it, it just an abhorrent injustice and right. it absolutely breaks my heart. Right. And when, when Hindus talk about gharvapasi, of people who have migrated to other faiths or who because of persuasion, force or inducement, uh, and they want to embrace back, it is branded as gharvapasi as if it is an evil thing. Yes. That's, that's another but, worrisome thing for me. Is that that's, the, Hindus, that's the Abrahamic Hindu traditions that we haven't talked about. Come back to yeah. Hinduism, Hindu fold. It is as if it is anti-religion, anti-Christian, anti-Islam. Why is the freedom of religion, we are not part of it? Well, you're not part of it. Um, and if you look into all of the institutional literature, which talks about anti-discrimination and hate crime and, um, you know, human rights and so forth, there's no um, discourse on anti-Hindu hatred. Except really, I think there's quite a lot in the Indian parliamentary um, records. If you go through there, you can have a look. The Indian parliamentary records have um, recognised anti-Hindu hatred. In fact, you've got quite good, um, I think, if when it comes to incitement of hatred, hate speech and incitement to hate, you've got actually more, your system's more educated than ours is um, because you've had so many... Uh, uh, retaliate, retali uh, violent cycles where you've got, you know, a hate speech and then you've got something happen. Someone, someone takes a photograph or says something on WhatsApp these days and then they get burnt to death or hung. Like, it's just in insane the amount of stuff that, that, that goes on. So you do recognise hate speech and so forth there and that it has very dangerous repercussions. And so you do often see, in fact, um, I'm not saying it's fair. I do think that it's biased the way that um, these incidents are dealt with, but they're at least recognised. So there is some recognition. But if you look at the United Nations, it's all about protecting Abrahamic traditions. There's nothing there for Dharma traditions, very little there for uh, Indigenous traditions. Like they're barely even recognised as faiths. But we've got it on our census that, you know, people do have an Indigenous faith here. Um but it's only just becoming recognised. So there's no protections um, specifically set out for Hindus in any, in any of the institutions. Comes back, to, comes back to yet another point, which I'm still working on. And I want everybody who is listening to this or will listen to this later, is that what drives the Hindu phobia in the West and all over the world? And it's very rampant amongst, uh, they use, you know, the Marxist, socialist, communists to demean us. So the, is the rise of Hindu phobia in the West and globally is based on their fear that this faith has global acceptance, whether we like it or not. And these guys are not doing even, they are not even trying to do that in an organized fashion, but people are embracing yoga, meditation, pranayam, these are all practices which are universal. But it emanates from India. They, they capture it, but they recognize the value of it and they fear that their age-old practices which are based on fear and ignorance and the, abs and, the, and the gradual disappearance of that because of science and technology, people get to know more of it.
do you think that the fear of religion falling by to the Sanatan practices is the reason they consider the, us as evil? So there's like a, um, it's a paradigm. It's a, it, there's a, you know, you, we've, we've seen a lot in sustainability studies talking about the, um, the Western imperial um, ideology as being a paradigm of dichotomy, a, a fixed dichotomy. So, um, and the, the, the separation of the spirit from the body and, you know, all of these types of dualisms which run all the way through. So Hinduism and other Indigenous traditions, they work with energies which are outside the scientific spectrum. So we deal with, you know, spiritual energies, um, prana, uh, you know, there's a lot of, um, there's a whole there's many, many, many dimensions of reality according to the way that we see it when we practice yoga, for, for example. When you're a very devout Hindu, you access different dimensions of reality which show you that consciousness is universal, that there is that light of consciousness um, and that light is, you know, like it's all fulfilling. And then what are we going to do? If we become fulfilled from within and we start working from the heart, in, in, you know, caring about one another and, and working together to build up a civilization which is mutual and reciprocal rather than this one-way sort of thing. I think it's terrifying because, you know, it's it, it threatens everything about the civilization that we've built now. And, you know, you start worshipping nature, you start caring about the life and the spirit that's in an animal or a, or a plant and you start using the energies that are in those plants, for example, for herbal medicine. Um, if you start, uh, you know, if you don't eat beef, if you start caring about the cows that you produce the milk from, you know, like this is this is going to change the entire structure of civilization if people catch on. So obviously they want to strip out those elements that give you that that sense of fulfillment, that build up that sense of empathy and love and that connectedness to all of life. So if that happens, what are they going to what are they going to throw at you? If you know that you're going to come back again and again, um, and that you are the divine itself, what what do you, what do you want for? Um, they can kill you, and you'll come back. And you know, like it's, it's you, you. They can't scare you with this fear of the afterlife. That if you do something on the earth, that you you're going to burn in hell forever. Because even if we do something bad, we can actually evolve and grow and become better. Uh, even demons can become better. There's no static dichotomy between evil and good. There's no static dichotomy between, um, you know, there's, there's things that are right and things that are wrong in different contexts. So ahimsa is a good example, which we were talking about before. It's not non-violent if someone's coming at you and attacking you to let them hit you. That's not ahimsa. So people who've been teaching this, uh, this is not anything to do with the way that, uh, for example, the Gita is going to teach us about karma yoga and so forth. I mean, it's not ahimsa um, if your family are being attacked to to run away and hide like a coward. It's not a himster if your mate is being attacked on online and they're being cyberbullied and you sit back and do nothing. 
that's not ahimsa. You're letting the violence continue. So there's no fixed, you know, rights and wrongs. So they want to fix us into a being a wrong. We're, we're a wrong. We're an evil. We're satanic. And everything we do is wrong. It's regressive. It's not civilised. It's not scientific. <laughs> so it doesn't matter. You're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. Then in that case, you better be damned when you do. At least you are responding. Well, At least you are not <laughs> late taking things lying down, which is very important, is to ask questions. There's no necessity. No, we don't have to lay down and take anything. Yes, because absolutely not. It is time for everybody to, I always use my favorite uh, Swami Vivekananda's three A's, is arise, awaken, and assert. And he said this many years ago. And to which I have added the fourth A, which is my A, is act. Because it doesn't matter who you are if you are not able to protect and defend yourself. Right. Yeah, it is. It is very critical for Hindus to awaken and you know arise to act. Well, knowing what we know now, I mean, it one doesn't need further proof of Hindu misia or Hindu phobia. Call it what you like, but we are under attack. Our faith is under attack. Our belief system is at, under attack. We are getting demonized. We are being vilified. If we do not, and this manual is an is a real sad thing written by academicians in the U.S. academy, uh, academic institutions, virtually saying that we are the ones who are causing all problems and better prepare for it. One of the classic instances is of the caste, caste issue in America. You know, we have two very interesting studies. One is by Equality Labs, which has no evidence of any caste-based discrimination in America, which peddles a data that doesn't exist. But that is what the even Google and other corporations invite them to give a talk on that. But we have a Carnegie Foundation research which proves that there is no caste-based discrimination in America, but nobody reads it. Nobody cares for it. Where that, that's, that's another part which bothers me. Where is this happening? What is it driving? Because unless and until we've configured the enemy or the fight, you can't respond. But now we have evidences and we have to categorically rise against those. So your thoughts on it as we are coming to the close end of the last last 10 minutes is yeah. where do we go from here? Where does well, we go from here? How does the Hindu group organized? How does it organize itself to resist this? Because the haters are really well organized. You've got to tip your hat to them. They are determined. They are using the tools available to them to box us in a particular category and tell us who we are. How, do, how does one respond to that? So, I mean, the obvious thing is this. For 200 years, Aboriginal people in this country have been fighting against the colonial oppression they, they don't hate us, for example. They don't want us all to leave the country, but they want to have their rights. They want to have their self-determination, and they've been fighting and fighting and fighting. And, you know, I've been involved in some of these activist um, sort of activities, protests and, you know, campaigns, and I've listened and I've heard and I've watched and I've seen what the government's done and how they've responded to certain things. And, you know, if the government really wanted to fix this, they would have fixed it by now. 
there's solutions to these problems and they're not actually rocket science. You can go and you can improve the, the conditions of these Indigenous communities that are being treated like second-class citizens, even worse. <clears throat> I would say third or fourth-class citizens in some cases. The government's ignoring. They're, they're putting out these sort of like, you know, packages to make it look like there's, there's progress. And I think there is some progress there, but it's not enough. Now, when you see an activist movement that gets traction straight away, that is picked up by corporations so that they have these corporate training packages on certain types of discrimination and oppression, highly funded so that these people have got the money to get scholars to sit down and produce reports because it's extremely time-consuming. Let me tell you, I've been writing things and it takes months and months, months of reading, especially if you're doing all primary research because there's nothing there that you can work with. They've got people working. They've got people producing this. And, it, and it, even though it's shoddy, like ridiculously shoddy like this manual, and if you go and read the reports, it's, it even says the opposite thing. It proves the opposite thing that they're trying to, to demonstrate. You go through the, the, the sources and it proves the opposite thing of what they're trying to demonstrate. And none of these institutions which are taking these people seriously, none of these academics which are signing these letters in support, none of these media outlets which are producing voluminous materials saying that Hindutva is attacking academics and silencing academic freedom and like the most like extravagant claims. Nobody's checking the facts. Nobody's checking the references. And I'll tell you why, because it suits them. It suits them. Because if they if they wanted to um, if they if they if they if people really were oppressed in those those situations, right? Historically, they would have had to fight and fight and fight like women have to get their rights, like um, civil rights movement in America. They had to fight and fight and fight. Same with um, Indigenous Australians. They've had to fight and fight for hundreds, 200 years and they still haven't got their rights. So ask yourself the question as to who's condoning and supporting this and what's their interests? Because it certainly is a problem in America and I would say that there's there's something to do with these American institutions that they're that they're pushing this agenda. And what is the agenda? I've said it's a regime change ideology. American exceptionalism, you know, they love to they love to maintain that I'm I'm sorry, you live there and I know people live there, but America is the imperialist of, of the of the world right now. They're the top dog. Do you think they're going to let India rise? That's a very valid question, uh, you know, because political rivalry, the territorial uh, designs, they remain. And it's out of the, it is absolute true that, uh, you know, the natives in America have suffered a lot. And I mean, in a way, I'm glad that Columbus didn't come to India. He was looking for India and landed here. And the locals of this arena suffered. They live in reservations, so to say. And I'm glad Columbus didn't reach India. Otherwise, we, he would have colonized India in an even much more aggressive way. Having said that, there is also an element of the fact that Hindus do not resist. You use the word fight, fight, fight. And Kashmir files the movie that depicted the truth in a different way. People now know. And there are two questions that arise here. And one of them is that None of the Kashmiris took to arms to fight. 
fight back. And, and there is an element of pride that, you know, we remained, we did not get, you know, affected by the violence of the people of that area to drive them out. But the result is the Kashmiris are homeless. But when I shared this thought with a few of my American friends, they said, and this was a response, while it is great that you, uh, <coughs> uh, while you, while uh, this is what you call it, uh, while you did not fight, but you mean to say out of half a million people who left did not fight back? Nobody fought? They also said to me, and I agree with that, whatever my people might say, that 80% of the Hindus in India, nobody responded. That your Hindus were taken apart in Kashmir and nobody responded. What kind of people are you? And that's a challenge. That's a challenge that we must address. You know, it's not that we go back into a street fight, but if it is a must, so be it. You know, as the, as the saying goes, dharmo rakshati rakshati, you know, rakshati rakshati. We have to fight. It is very, very important to do that. And we haven't learned the art of fighting. That's important element, though we have had amazing warriors in the past who fought all kinds of rulers, uh, you know, imported rulers that came to India whether they were British or Mughal or anybody else. We have had fights. We have fought, fought wars, but the history has not been taught correctly. That's the important part. And I would say that it's time for us to organize, resist, and fight. Fight back with the same tools that others are using against us. we got to play the game better. As To yeah. use the sports analogy, you've got to play the game better. That's what is important to think about it. Viewers, if you have any questions, you can ask through Super Chat. And, you know, Maliniji will be delighted to answer your questions. If not, we will end the show in seven minutes. Now, there's one last thing that I wanted to check with you. The fear or the concern that comes about. There is a very interesting ideological thing. I have been asking most of my Muslim friends, would you agree to drop the word kafir from your language, the non-believer, has to be eliminated. There is no answer for that. I'm asking my Christian friends that God made this universe. If God made this universe, let's not talk about evolution as a concept. He created man and woman, male and female. And there is a purpose for being male and female, for creating the progenies and continuing the their life cycle. But they call it sin. And I have, a, I, have, I, have, I have an issue with that. When you create, when you call a God-created element as a sinful activity, you live perpetually in sin. Whereas we don't call it sin. Is that, is, 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 is that a very rudimentary element that makes them resist nature and God-given things the way they are. They have a God that's sort of a transcendental God, but even though he's omnipotent and omniscient, he's a transcendental God. So the world and God are two different things. And the world is essentially sinful. And, you know, you can only redeem yourself by a certain, um, you know, putting your faith in their God So and their way and their the ways in which that they do things. So if you're talking about um, Abrahamic patriarchal uh, imperialism, 
you're talking about a god who's a man and the man is made in the image of the god and then the man is the the one who obtains dominion over the earth and the man has the right to use the world as the as the man chooses and the woman is to be subservient and everything else which is deemed to be of the woman for example emotions psychic energies um spiritual energies and um things that they deem to be connected to the earth and so forth all of these are feminized so indigenous peoples are close to the earth and the closer to the earth you get the more you are in like a woman because the woman is the one that reproduces the woman bears life and so the woman has been like cattle like chattel the woman is the one that produces on behalf of the man the acts in which the man takes credit for and the man will then, um, you know, this is patriarchal, Abrahamic patriarchy in a nutshell. The man inherits everything, the man owns everything, the man's got all the power and this is the way in which this culture was built. So women said, look, we've had enough of this uh, and they first started attacking the church actually. So, yeah, the church did get quite a hard time for uh, what they had done. So feminists do <laughs> criticise um, the church. You see this with the abortion um, issue over in America at the moment. So, you know, the reproduci reproductive rights of women are being um, discussed by men and institutions built by men. It's right. a masculine system, right? The whole thing's a masculine system. So if you're looking at sin and um, its relationship to the feminine, Indigenous peoples being close to the earth, the earth being the feminine, the earth being ungodlike because the earth is you know, so far removed from the divine who lives out there. Mm -hmm. There's a whole, there's a whole, like, there's a whole canon of, of philosophical and critical uh, theory about this issue that's on, on the academic databases. There's nothing radical uh, to be talking about. So I, I don't know. Um, now, when you're talking about fighting, I want to go back because we've got to look at this issue in Kashmir as institutional and it's it's genocide is not an event. It goes over centuries. So it's it's happening now in Australia through cultural types of genocide and erasure and physical types of genocide and so forth. All of this stuff is still happening today and it happens slowly and incrementally. But with in, in Kashmir, like um, I've said before, there's these punctuated attacks and they've been forced out seven times in that and that their population is just progressively now if they took up arms it would be the same as what would happen here if the three percent of indigenous people took up arms against the state they did take up arms they did fight but they were unequal there was a disproportionate advantage to the people that had the me mechanized weapons that that were able to destroy them in so many different ways so they had a, an advantage and Kashmir pandits weren't armed. They didn't know how to use arms. They weren't a Kshatriya uh, class. They had, uh, you know, they were of the Brahmin class in a very traditional manner in that sense because they were very much the philosophers and the, 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 the ones that produced knowledge and so forth. They were working in administration and they had that intellectual thing. Um, and they did have people that were in the military. They weren't all just uh, administrators. Some of them were all different kinds of things, but they weren't particularly well-trained uh, in order to defend themselves. So if they had taken up arms, they would have been wiped out. There would be no Kashmir pandits. That's it. So if they had taken up arms and they'd formed militias, you know, uh, to go back in there, I don't know if that would have that would have helped if they'd 
if they'd got their people out to safety and then they'd formed their own militias, but then they would be against the state and the terrorists and Pakistan. <laughs> so it would have been a very complex little struggle there, but I don't think they would have survived, to be honest. This, I think they would have been is, This issue destroyed. is very, very, very huge. And, of course, one hour of conversation will not yeah. use uh, solutions, but it is important to talk about it because if you don't talk about it, <laughs> Nobody knows about it. So we have a question. Well, people didn't. People ignored them. That's the yes. problem. The whole country just didn't give it. They didn't care. Right. Even the state. Yes. They didn't even write a census. There's no census. That's right. From twenty. Um, from sorry. From I think it was two thousand and one. There was meant to be. A, was it ninety one? There was there was a census missing. Mm -hmm. I don't know what the dates are. I can't re remember. But after they left, they didn't do a census. So we've got no clue how many people were there before and how many were there after. That's, that's, that's that institutionalised hate. Exactly, exactly. Thank you very much. We have a question. Consol, please put up the question so that we can see it. Yadavinder Singh Saini is asking a question. Thank you very much, Yadavinder. Why can't Hindu billionaires like Ambani and Adani fund the fight against Hinduphobia? Has anybody tried to reach out to them? Can we do it? Uh, would you like to answer that question? Because They need to, but if you're going to fund the fight against Hinduphobia, please do it correctly. Uh, you need to fund scholars to go through the discourse and you need to get all of the professionally, all of it needs to be, um, the data all needs to be verified. So you can't work from media reports. You need to get a media report. Then you need to get the police statements and you need to get the court documents and you need to match everything up and, you know, verify every single incident that happens. I mean, for every incident that happens, you need 10 people working on the job at, at, at the same time and then checking it over different periods. Like, for example, the Ram Navami. If you, if you take from the, um, <clears throat> the media discourse what happened on Ram Navami, you're going to end up with a, a whole pile of lies. Uh, and so this is the problem that we have is that we've got unprofessional people uh, doing this who don't know how to collect data, uh, unfortunately, and th if they were funded, they could do it properly because it costs money. Yes. So, yes, Adani, I mean... Maybe that can help him to, um, I mean, these people are very wealthy all over. I don't think we should be relying on uh, big wealthy people. If you just chip in a uh, dollar or two dollars or ten dollars into, um, you know, the GoFundMe accounts of people who are working on this and then you call them to account and say, hey, I gave you some money, what did you do with it? Are we holding our institutions, our Hindu institutions to account why aren't we teaching this? In our, we've got resources. We've got temples. We've got universities. We've got resources. Why aren't we teaching this stuff? Like everywhere that Hindus go, they should have education on anti-Hindu sentiment, how to recognise it, what to do about it, and support networks, infrastructure. That's what the other side have got. They've got, they've got institutions. They've got whole institutions set up to do what they do. So, that's, right. that's right. You know, everything, everything, even God needs money. Every research needs money. Temples, <laughs> churches and mosques with money. So the question is, yes, my response to this would be that 
I am sure Hindu bodies have reached them, but somewhere along the line, it is the inability to be secular that drives many people, uh, you know, in this regard. So, Yadavandir Singh, thank you very much for supporting. And yes, we have to create a collective consciousness. We have to be definitely aware and act. If we don't do that, things won't happen. Malaniji, we have come to the end of the show. Thank you okay. very much for joining today. It is very early morning for you from Australia. So it is great to have you here. America, I'm doing about 11.30 a.m. You are doing about 1.30 a.m. We are both in a.m. still. <laughs> so, so thank you can very just, much for joining today. Can I just add one thing? I just Please. want to tell people, yes. if you experience anti-Hindu sentiment, whether it's online, whether it's at work, whether it's at school, whether it's in the street, if you experience anything that's to do with your ethnicity, your culture, or your faith, you take evidence and don't be afraid to take evidence. Record phone calls, take videos, take screenshots, and you can upload them. Um, I've got a portal that you can upload them to, but if, um, you know, if I need to reach out to people in America to pass it over, I'm happy to do that. You need to report things to the police. You need to report them to your boss. And if you don't get anywhere with it, you need to join together and say, look, 10 of us reported this incident and you did nothing about it. All 10 of us, we're going to come together and we're going to say, what is going on? Because all of us say that this is happening and you're not listening. And then you protest. You lock onto buildings. I mean, there's so many different things that you can do to protest. You disrupt the system because they don't like being disrupted. If it costs them money, if it costs them convenience and comfort, they will start listening to you. So don't be afraid to rock the boat. But I take the that's, evidence. That's a key word. Don't be afraid. That's fear, right. Fear cannot be the determining factor for us. <laughs> and that's all important. right. Thank you very much. Yes. Thank you very much. I always thank say Satyameh Jayate. And thank you, viewers, <laughs> for joining us today for all your questions. And yes, it is 9 p.m. in India. So we have had a global audience connecting through the continents. So thank you very much. To all thank you. Viewers. Thank you. I hope it was um, interesting. The channel, like, like, subscribe to the channel. We are new, we are growing, and we will do more of this conversation. Thank you, Malniji, once again. Thank you, viewers. Satyamev Jayate. Thank you. I think the console has gone to sleep. It's 9 p.m. in India. <laughs> Request them to close the show now. <laughs> I can leave, and then you can leave. Okay, we can leave. <laughs> oh. Sure, sure. <clears throat> Thank you that. for having me. We'll talk again. Thank you. Thank yes, you. please. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.